Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Oh my god, victory! Before we start the episode, I just have to say, not only did we just see the largest protests for transgender rights in, like, recorded history, thousands of people in Chicago, Brooklyn, L.A., and other cities last Sunday, and then on Monday, the Supreme Court ruled that it is illegal to discriminate against LGBTQ people in the workplace. Not just gay people, all of us. You can no longer be legally fired in America for being transgender. Activists have been fighting for this ruling since the very beginning of the queer liberation movement. 
And you know what else is cool? Prior to the ruling, a group of historians submitted a brief to the court citing writing by Daughters of Belita's co-founder, Del Martin, and 1954 Mattachine Society meeting notes using the phrase sex variant. They cited these as evidence that mid-century Americans recognized the meaning of the term sex to include identities of LGBT individuals, and thus including us in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The highest court in our land made that determination legal this week. If your version of celebration is listening to a non-binary queer monologue about the history of gay bars, I guess you're in for a 40-minute treat. This podcast includes text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show contains identifying terms that may now be out of date. That spring, McCarthy was censured. The Supreme Court decision on the desegregation of schools was announced in the English newspaper, and for a while, all of us seemed to go crazy with hope for another kind of America. Audre Lord, Zami. 1954. Jay walks into the handlebar with a companion. The bar is filled with men sipping drinks and talking under low lights and loud music. Jay and his friend have a cruising system worked out. They part ways. Jay takes a seat at the bar where he watches the other guys cruise. Someone approaches him there, asks for a cigarette and a light. He's handsome. The man puts the cigarette to his lips and Jay holds up the light. As the flame touches the cigarette, the man holds Jay's hands in his, squeezing, looking into Jay's eyes. He says he likes Jay's eyes and his beautiful face. He takes a seat and they chat a while while the man flicks the cigarette against the ashtray. He asks Jay if he's ever been in love. The man says to Jay, I sure like your face. I don't love you, but I could learn to love you. Would you like to come up to my place and make love tonight? What do you mean? The man hems and haws. Jay gets up to go. No, don't leave me. He rubs Jay's arms and kisses his cheek, standing close, touching for several minutes. Jay's friend watches from across the room. I want you to love me, and I want to love you at my place tonight. Jay follows the man to the door, passing through the exit. When their feet hit the sidewalk, Jay turns to the man and slaps cuffs on his wrists. Wait a minute. His partner follows behind them out of the bar and grabs the man by the arm. A homosexual has fallen into their trap. Previously. What's wrong with you, Mary? You'll never fall and you'll never flub if you come to Mona's Club. This is a rendezvous of the gay people. From the gay street to the gay bar, one does not deny encounters, utilizes the meeting place. Weakened organized crime, a distrust of the police, and alcohol barely regulated by the state allows San Francisco's gay bars to thrive. There is no organized crime in San Francisco. The crime's all organized by the police department. Undercover agents are sent into the gay bars. No one knows who is watching them. If someone walking in doesn't seem queer, the clientele watches them. How are you, my dear? You're looking very gay today. Tommy Vasu opens the 299, encouraging butch dykes like her to come in. Tommy wears ties, short hair, and hangs out with sex workers. You could say I was a boy. You could say I was a girl. And maybe they are both. But it is very confusing. What with gay boys calling each other bitches and gay girls calling each other 
each other Joes. It was a gay scene, that's all I And when he has his audience laughing, has their full attention. He refers to them as a community, like-minded, politically aligned, ethically the same in their queerness. The black cat. The most famous bohemian bar in the world. After a raid on Tommy's place, California's liquor control is handed off to the tax board. Alcoholic Beverage Control Board, or ABC, specifically made to police the bars. Without the support of the courts, the police and the district attorney cannot attack the problem effectively. Cops get paid well enough to let sex workers work. They crack down on vice districts, and in exchange for lighter crackdowns, they take payoffs. Graft. Rebels have been flaunting convention at the Black Cat for over 20 years. Limp wrists, femme voices on men, butch clothing on women, same gender, dancing, kissing, hand-holding. Your reputation shot to hell the minute you came in here, you know. Agents of the Board of Equalization arrived on an errand. They can raid because sodomy might happen. George Christopher runs for San Francisco mayor against the former head of the state board, George Riley. Please take your hands out of your pockets. We're fighting to save our license here, honey. This is the serialized story of queer liberation in America from day one to Stonewall. I'm Devlin Camp. January 1956. San Francisco's new law and order mayor, George Christopher, takes office after a campaign against the former state board chairman, George Riley. As in Stuman v. Riley, he lost the case against the black cat. Riley was defeated by a homosexual bar. Now, Christopher, a Republican Greek immigrant who served as a city supervisor for 10 years, thinks he can crack down on this city more effectively than Riley. He grew up in the South of Market District and saw how crime operated. Cops would become familiar with their district's crime systems and take payoffs. The sex tourism and drug profits thrived as cops took bribes to ignore the sex work and bars where so-called perverts gathered. Tourists heard about the fun in San Francisco and brought plenty of cash to the city. But Christopher doesn't care about tourist money here. When he takes his place in the mayor's office, one of his first acts is shaking up the police department. He asks for the resignation of the chief of police and appoints his own man, Frank Ahern. Square-jawed Ahern transfers all captains and lieutenants to new districts in order to break up neighborhood alliances and awareness of where vice operates. He puts his most dependable officers in the city center and effectively jams the payoff systems. Sex and drug tourism seizes up as new cops in the neighborhoods lay down the law on their new districts. Letters pour into Mayor Christopher's office. Even the newspapers print the citizens' angry letters, lashing out at the mayor for stopping their thriving vice businesses. Mayor Christopher says, It got to the point where you'd have thought that they were the crusaders and I was the bad guy. Behavior that used to be overlooked by San Francisco police now indicates potential illegal behavior. For instance, an effeminate man swishing into a bar suggests sexual solicitation inside the establishment undercover officers will follow him inside. The Stuman v. Riley case, the Black Cat's defeat of State Board Chairman Riley, the bar's winning verdict allows homosexuals to gather in a bar, which cops cannot take action against. But limp wrists and high voices tell police that the illegal act of sodomy might occur, and the women wearing men's clothing is grounds for indecent behavior. The cops begin sending their own people inside to check for these violations. Undercover officers change the space, as no one knows who is watching them inside. Agents continue to make arrests on these grounds, so the California state legislature just oversteps the Stuman verdict and unanimously passes a measure allowing the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board, 
the ABC, to investigate any bar seen as a resort for sex perverts. As word spreads that cops are infesting the bars to arrest patrons, bars again use structural defenses against the police in order to save their business. Boarded windows, backroom dance floors, and coded language. Downtown vendors and business folks see fewer and fewer customers as the neighborhood becomes less fun. Gambling houses move business across the bay. Sex workers move to the Tenderloin. The ABC investigators go undercover in a bar called the Paper Doll and encourage men to solicit them. Soon, they lure their queers outside, where more ABC agents who wait with guns make the arrests. Chief Ahern orders cops to park outside gay bars around closing time so patrons are too paranoid to return. Once the arrests are made at an establishment, the investigators use their power with the police, the city, and the military to revoke a bar's license on the grounds that it's a resort for sex perverts. With the endorsement of the mayor and his police, the ABC turns over the graft and reveals the city's underbelly. Mayor George Christopher has shut the city down. As gay bars shudder due to minor flirtations between their patrons, bar owners begin to wonder what the responsibility is in policing their own customers. February 1956. Hazel Nicola has run her bar just south of San Francisco for almost 20 years. She runs and bartends Hazel's herself, so she keeps very busy. On an average Sunday night while Hazel is busy tending bar, she's unaware of five undercover agents mingling among the dancing men. The agents have been coming for weeks to scope out the place and figure out who is a regular. They flirt and buy drinks for other men. And most importantly, they watch each other flirt with other men so that they can corroborate each other's stories in court. Just after midnight on this February night, the doors slam open and 35 officers raid Hazel's bar. Cops, ABC agents, State Highway Patrol, and military police scatter the patrons. The police department can handle this raid alone, but the sheriff has called in everyone. 300 customers are lined up as the agents pick out 90 regulars. 77 men, 10 women, and 3 minors are arrested on vagrancy charges. 3 bartenders are arrested for serving the minors. And finally, the cuffs are slapped on Hazel Nicola for operating a dance without a permit. The police officers testify in court. Many of the men had their arms wrapped around each other's waists or shoulders or buttocks. Many men were observed kissing or fondling or biting each other or holding hands. And other men were seen sitting on the laps of their male companions and kissing and holding each other. ABC agents testify. Female patrons were dressed in mannish attire. Men were seen powdering their faces, talking in effeminate voices, and generally acting like over-affectionate females. The court deems this gender transgression as evidence of a resort for sexual perverts, which is grounds for the bar's license to be revoked. The ACLU opposes, saying vagrancy charges are a crime of condition, of status. The judge agrees, and it's difficult to prosecute everyone together. The judge says a bar owner must have actual knowledge that his premises are being used for such purposes. The Alcohol Beverage Control Board rolls their eyes and holds their own separate hearing to quickly revoke Hazel's license. She appeals the verdict, and as it continues to work its way through the state's appeals process, Hazel Nicola continues to lose her case. As so-called resorts for sex perverts continue to be determined illegal, the right for homosexuals to gather in an establishment won by the Black Cat case is broken down. 
The First Amendment right to assembly argument is lost for the bar community. The state's decision points to bar owners as fully responsible to make sure their bars aren't a place for deviants to gather in order to do illicit things like gender bend or go home to sodomize. Those bartenders who do intend for homosexuals to gather in their business must now remain paranoid about undercover agents inside, and bar owners are forced to moderate the behavior of their queer customers. Back in the Mattachine offices, Hal Call mimeographs a list of 35 gay bars to give out at the annual Mattachine convention. He numbers each copy and intends to have every person who takes one to sign for it, just to be sure the bar list won't end up in the hands of the police. Mattachine membership is scarce. Many people that do join see it as an alternative to bars, some are safe, so it seems to Hal the only way to get more people involved in the Mattachine society is to go meet them in their own spaces, the bars. Particularly, now that these homosexuals arrested in the bars are the ones who are going to need the Mattachine's help. By and large, they couldn't care less about our project, our magazine, or anything we're trying to do. But when they run afoul of the law, the song and chorus is changed. Then they want help. Mattachine can fight to protect homosexuals using the right to due process. In order to do this, the organization needs for gays to work within political expectations— Put on a suit and tie and fight in court. Many bars, desperate to maintain their business, begin to regulate their patrons' image, too. Meanwhile, the ABC board strategizes with the military and city police, who call on all cops to keep, quote, gathering places of homosexuals under constant pressure. As effeminate men are discouraged from many bars and homophile meetings, they seek out the other options for sex and socializing. Parks, baths, beaches. Undercover investigators create a blueprint of action to sweep through the city's cruising grounds and target the obvious homosexuals. Their words again. Those with swishing hips are stopped on the streets and questioned. Those who are arrested have their name, address, physical description, and place of employment sent to sex crime investigators for a list of known homosexuals in San Francisco. Jose Saria boldly stands on the stage of the Black Cat and drag, declaring that they must assert themselves as a community. They must avoid entrapment if possible, but if arrested, they must assert their rights. The ABC board sends undercover agents into the Black Cat. The agents testify that patrons inside the cat solicited them to participate in lewd acts. This is ground for the liquor license to be revoked, as the Black Cat is deemed a resort for sex perverts. Attorney Morris Lowenthal steps in again. The agents induced patrons to solicit them. That's entrapment. Lowenthal argues that this resort law is unconstitutional and against the Black Cat's earlier verdict in Stuman v. Riley. The case moves forward to the ABC appeals court, where Lowenthal cites the Kinsey reports again. Modern researchers on sex have shown that a large number of persons have homosexual relations at one time or another. He says that people can't just be pointed out as queer based on their body language. Bartenders can't hold people responsible for who they take home from the bar. The state's deputy attorney general rebuts. It is our contention anyone can tell a homosexual. These bars constitute a danger to morals and health. If it constitutes a danger to the public, a bar owner's license will be taken away from him to protect the greater public interest. This case takes about seven years to settle. Appeal after appeal, ultimately, the California Supreme Court refuses to hear the case, and the Black Cat will be shut down in 1963. The Black Cat is just one of many gay bars who face their fate with the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board. 
the ABC board pushes people and their recognizably queer behavior back into the closet. Homophiles seem to have no choice but to work within these boundaries. So the people that can't pass as heteronormative are punished the most severely. Not just by the police, but by their own community. One homophile writes into the Mattachine Society. By walking down Market Street, you can well see the faggots swishing away with their oh-so-sophisticated voices, with the least concern or care toward who sees or hears them. Makeup, mascara sometimes, lipstick, the whole works is used by these faggots. I'm not one to know the usage of cosmetics, only when used so thick that anyone could scrape it off with a butter knife and still have some to spare. I wear cosmetics myself, but only to cover blemishes, and then I am discreet. I used to be one of them, but I have learned my lesson. That is, recognition by action and speech. Acceptance into heterosexual society is one of the most important firsts for homophiles, even to the faggot. For the majority of us, it is due to these faggots who scream with defiance that we are not accepted. Is it not high time that those who still have their wits about them do something to clean up this saddening mess? Or are they scared? Scared so much that it is even still difficult for them to stand up and fight for a right that is being denied them by cleaning up our own homophile society. Fight is easy, if it is done properly, and I hardly mean by fists, but by enforcing that these faggots not be allowed into your gathering places unless they conform. It is not hard to make some changes in habit. In the long run, life will be worth living, and acceptance will be for all. Hal Call responds to this letter. We agree that defiance and way-out expression of one's feelings of rejection by a few bring scorn and derision upon the many. Nevertheless, we have also observed that rebellion ignored soon falls flat. And most of these social rebels see the folly of their faggotry in time. But here we see another and possibly greater sickness on the part of the society itself. A new horde of swishes seems to sachet onto the scene every generation. If the majority of society changes its attitude and accepts sexuality for what it is, then we won't have to waste time in the impossible task of remodeling every affected and effeminate swish. After all, the harm he causes is more ephemeral than permanent, more an uncomfortable sting than a damage of consequence. These are individuals who, while not dressing in female attire, use heavy facial makeup, wear bouffant hairdos, and exhibit many feminine characteristics, swiveling hips, falsetto voices, holding cigarettes with bent wrists, etc. They are perhaps the most openly rebellious and defiant of all homosexuals, wearing their sexual orientations like a lavender badge of courage. Most hair fairies, also referred to as street queens, use feminine pronouns in terms of reference among themselves, like she, her, that bitch, etc. They often can be seen in large packs walking down the main street in the central shopping district of San Francisco. These people they write about are not necessarily homosexuals. They're not being criticized by homophiles for their sexuality. They're being targeted for their gendered expressions. Had Harry Hayes' vision for the Mattachine survived, one of inclusivity, perhaps the organization might have reached out to help these non-conforming people too. Who can say? Historian Nan Alamia Boyd will one day write that the gays who survived on moderating their behavior to seem hetero had their homophile ideology sharpened. The Mattachine is able to provide legal counsel, advice to veterans, referrals to lawyers, employment, housing, and psychiatrists who understand them, but only to those people who can pass as not so obviously queer. Otherwise... Who would take them seriously? An anonymous Mattachino writes, We are not distinguishable from heterosexual people in any visible way. 
We are not more unreliable, unstable, or dangerous than heterosexuals. Our hearts are not less full of pride and honor at the sight of massed American flags because we are homosexual. We do not work less hard for America or love her less or support the Republican administration and policies less wholeheartedly because we are homosexual. Let's bypass the obvious pandering to McCarthy's paranoia and notice the first line of that letter. We are not distinguishable from heterosexual people in any visible way. We are not distinguishable. With this statement, transgender and gender nonconforming people who cannot pass as hetero or cis normative are automatically rejected from the homophile movement. You are not one of us if you cannot pass. And with this point of view, the homophiles reject themselves from the greater queer movement. At the next annual convention of the Mattachine Society in May 1954, only 42 members attend. As membership dwindles, especially among women, Mattachine President Ken Burns notes, What the society requires as members is quality, not quantity. The Shade. Publications chairman Hal Call has an idea for getting their mission out and reaching new members. The Magazine. A Mattachine publication might reveal the realities of homosexuality to a new audience. It might help more homosexuals gather self-esteem and also educate heterosexuals, too. Rather than encouraging a culture around homosexuality, like he sees the folks at One Magazine doing in L.A., Hal decides to present the facts in a more serious tone. Articles that advance our cause on the fronts of research, law, religion, community service, and personal adjustment. Hal predicts 3,000 subscribers after launch. But there's steep competition. One magazine, recently reorganized with Don Slater at the helm, is hitting new peaks with 5,000 subscribers per year. Slater's encouragement of pieces on queer history, literature, philosophy brings new and exciting awareness to homosexuals. And Mattachine's competition isn't just with one magazine. The Daughters of Belitis are also preparing their lesbian publication, which they will also print in the Mattachine offices. While they rent half a small room from the men and write their pieces on a used typewriter and a donated desk, the Mattachine men don't see the women as much competition. Even Kenzie had his funding pulled from the Rockefeller Foundation when he published his Sexual Behavior in the Human Female Report. Will anyone buy the women's magazine? Perhaps with chapter power, the Mattachine's publication can spread quickly in major cities. On May 31, 1954, the first chapter outside of California holds their first meeting in Chicago. Forty people attend. The few members left in the Mattachine wonder where all this is headed. By that December, 2,500 copies of a teaser issue are printed in the Mattachine offices for distribution to bars and potential subscribers all over the U.S. And Hal Call knows exactly which message he wants to promote through the Mattachine Review. He establishes his own little company called Pangraphic Press to print the review on a used 11 by 17 offset press that he bought in 1954. By having his own company print the publication, he can keep it away from the board of the Mattachine and promote his own homophile message. As material is very scarce, he comes up with several pen names under which to write many of the articles. February 2nd, 1955, the Mattachine Review, Issue 1, hits newsstands. Of course, a homophile publication can't sell much advertising space, so the publishers wait and hope for newsstand sales and subscriptions to rise. And maybe a big donor or two will come along. Mattachine President Ken Burns writes to all existing members. 
Our goal is to enlist every member's support in the Mattachine magazine. If this project is to succeed, all of us must not only subscribe, but we must get our friends to subscribe. Where is the best way to meet with gay friends to spread the word about the new magazine? Bars. It's only natural. Many people are finding their entrance into the homosexual world through the Mattachine meetings, then they ultimately end up at the bars and then drop out of the Mattachine society. But most of the Mattachine leadership hesitates to get involved in places deemed by the government as resorts for sex perverts. It could hurt their organization. James Barr, the author of Quatrefoil, the first novel to portray homosexuality in a positive light, James Barr writes to the Mattachine Review staff on May 9, 1955. Mr. Burns and friends of the Mattachine, what you and your vehicle of expression will become is up to your collective wisdom. Whether in 20 years you will become fresh or pedantic, Effective or powerless, a guide or a pawn is up to you. You are in the enviable position of controlling your own destiny, a position too few of us can dare to covet these days. In 20 years, the Mattachine will be long dead. This week on my bonus podcast, Forgotten Fairy Tales, hear the story of future daughter of Belitis, Stella Rush, as she explains what it means to be a bisexual kai-kai homophile. Check out the bonus podcast on patreon.com slash queer serial. Other fun rewards on my Patreon? Buttons, transcripts of episodes, photos through the research process, more music, more books, and a pretty gorgeous mug with the podcast artwork. Check it out. Patreon.com slash queer serial. Click the link in the episode notes. In the May-June 1955 issue of the Mattachine Review, a new piece makes a bold endorsement. The piece is titled, Let's Kill Idle Rumors About Mattachine Aims. The public has a right and duty to provide self-protection. We earnestly support law enforcement aimed at preventing sexual indecencies in public. They believe consensual sex should be legal, just not in public. That doesn't really consider that people are having sex in public spaces like park bathrooms because they're so stigmatized and forced to live closeted lives. The piece goes on to encourage working within the law, printing the names of state legislators readers should contact. Change can only be accomplished in the proper way and manner and by the proper people. The early issues cover more of California's laws. An anachronism of medieval law and a menace to civil liberties. The issues also cover Mattachine meetings, featuring a transsexual guest speaker who talked about gender identity. The issues cover new and classic gay books like Quatrefoil, employment discrimination, and a report by Dr. Evelyn Hooker. Homosexuality is not a distinct clinical identity. Heating up the tea a bit... The review prints contrasting arguments, such as a piece by psychologist Albert Ellis. Ellis believes homosexuality is a neurotic condition based in a phobia of the opposite sex, resulting in a fixation on the same sex. He thinks through psychotherapy, he can change a person. Angry letters stack up on Hal's desk. I had thought you acknowledged us as human beings, as individuals whom you were fighting for the rights of. Now I see that all you are doing is poking fun and using us as a target for further ridicule by the public in general. We are not sick and don't ask treatment. We seek only understanding that we are as human as the rest. Our sexual desires are part of our nature. The Mattachine Review responds with neutrality. We hesitate to comment that either Ellis or his critics is to be regarded as wrong or right. We shall not evade an issue simply because it may be controversial and Albert Ellis dared to face it. 
Phyllis Lyon writes in the Belitis magazine, the latter. We don't think doctors' ideas are acceptable to us or to a vast majority of people in the psychiatric field. The review continues to print pieces such as Homosexuality, Disease or Way of Life, which refers to homosexuals as miserable souls and unreliable troublemakers. Many readers who spent decades reading coded language like in Henry Gerber's Contacts see publications like this as progress. But often, readers see the review as conformist and apologetic. But despite it all... Newsstand growth has been rapid. Jumping from 1,000 copies in February to 4,500 copies for the September-October 1955 issue. And only 14 cities carry the magazine on 23 total newsstands willing to risk selling it. In a time when the only queer stories in the mainstream press involve raids, violent crimes, and arrests, these rare lights in the dark, such as One Magazine, The Ladder, and The Mattachine Review, they allow homosexuals to find their way into a secret world. Jim Kepner says, You could be arrested for possessing such a publication, tame as it was. Newsstand sales are rising, but subscriptions don't move much. Fear of the postal authorities finding out your home address is a likely reason. Mattachino Elver Barker suggests encouraging subscriptions by connecting members with gay pen pals in the New York group. Hal writes back, My unqualified opinion, that it always has been and still is, no. Our prestige would topple as though a blast had occurred at the base of whatever tall or short tower of light and confidence we have thus far constructed. People already are hesitant to give their names. They definitely abandon Mattachine if they get caught up in a lawsuit for mailing sexual letters. It's for this same reason that the Mattachine Review doesn't print personal ads, subscribers' names, physique magazine titles, or the locations of bars, baths, or cruising spots. In order to keep these pillars of gay culture standing safely, those things must not go on the record. They must remain part of their underground secret world, separate of Mattachine. It's almost as if Hal Call is privately aware of a gay culture, even though part of his argument for taking the Mattachine was that a gay culture doesn't exist. The Mattachine Review continues to push against getting involved in the bar culture, despite their desperate need for gay bar patrons to subscribe to the magazine. They are the Mattachine's constituency. As homophiles fight against stereotypes in their magazine, bar patrons tend to embrace stereotypes as their identity. They enjoy being queer and living in queer spaces, even if it's dangerous. The Mattachine Review encourages homosexuals to fight the laws that make the bars dangerous and tells them not to withdraw into an invert society of their own. Since variants desire to be accepted by society, it behooves them to assume community responsibility. For only as they make positive contributions to the general welfare can they expect acceptance and full assimilation into the communities in which they live. Subscriptions aren't rising. With little money coming into Mattachine, the group's debt to Hal Call's pangraphic press is rising. The Mattachine Society owes Hal about $1,200. He's writing, printing, folding, stitching, cutting every issue that is barely selling. Mattachine President Ken Burns receives a letter from an investor in Hal Call's Pangraphic Press. Once the debt has gotten beyond the society's ability to liquidate it, it will have lost the magazine to Pangraphic Press. Henry Gerber, watching the movement now from a very safe distance, writes that homosexuals just want contact with other homosexuals, not to give their money away to them. His pen pal, Manuel Boyfrank, adds that Hal's Review is trying to sell sanity, but readers want something splashier, something gay. So maybe it's time for a little splash. In July 1956, Hal writes a tribute to outstanding female impersonator T.C. Jones, 
referring to him as a trailblazer, breaking down barriers of prejudice. T.C. Jones is a drag star, known for his impersonations of Judy Garland, Betty Davis, and Katherine Hepburn. He'll even appear on the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. When Mattachine president Ken Burns and his partner Dale Olson read Hal's tribute in their copy of the review, they're livid. Olson writes to Hal, I don't feel that the society's pledge and aims and principles we have stated in the past agree with the type of thing Jones is doing. I don't see where it gives us any valuable standing to salute a drag queen. I hardly think that the professional people we've been trying to win will be pleased with it at all. Hal keeps pushing for magazine sales. His review articles begin to address religion and its responsibility for encouraging sex negativity. He starts writing sexy poetry and tells the magazine's artists not to submit drawings of homosexuals that make them all look like tragic inverts. He even includes some drawings of San Francisco gay spots. Hint, hint, dear reader. Under his pen names, Hal writes grabbier headlines like Take my name off your mailing list and You're Fired or Sex Pervert, Age 7. He tries out Queen's Country Revisited and New Light on Masturbation. Mattachine leaders are furious. President Ken Burns writes to criticize Hal. Hal responds, saying that he never wanted the magazine to be the Mattachine board's own message. He never planned to jump through their hoops. That's just the plain, unvarnished truth. With sales still not incredibly high, but definitely higher than Mattachine meeting attendance, where some cities report only five members, Hal's magazine becomes the Mattachine's main voice. In other words, we are the board. If you think otherwise, you are only being unrealistic. He then goes on to tell Ken he wants to publish 12 issues per year instead of six. President Ken says fine, but half of those will be printed privately for subscribers only. They can cover subjects that can't be sold on newsstands. But the petty infighting continues. Dale Olson is overwhelmed by secretarial duties in L.A. while fighting with Halep in San Francisco. His partner, President Ken Burns, is often away, traveling to other Mattachine chapters. Hal is off visiting the new East Coast Mattachine chapter in New York, while Burns and Olson are trying to settle into their new home in L.A. When Olson checks the mail, he finds he's received a membership card from Don Lucas in San Francisco, welcoming him to the Mattachine Society. Dale Olson cracks. He's done feeling like San Francisco is looking down on him, even while his lover is their president. Dale resigns from the Mattachine and begins taking jobs writing for newspapers in Hollywood. Sam Morford addresses his fellow New York Mattachinos. Many people will reject the entire organization because all they can see is the one person they don't like, and they can't see all the people they do like. That, to my mind, goes right back to what is the main problem with the homosexual today. The greatest discrimination, the greatest rejection, the greatest prejudice, I feel, is one homosexual to another. It's around this time in 1956 that Hal has hundreds of subscribers, and the Mattachine Review is also sold on over 100 newsstands and bookstores across the country. You can pick it up on the street in New York City, in a market in the Tenderloin, or at City Lights Bookstore just around the corner from Finocchio's. April 1956. Naturally, the New York special agent in charge for the FBI sends a couple of issues of the Review and one to Director J. Edgar Hoover. He says they were received anonymously through the mails and published ostensibly for homosexuals. The agent notes his interest that the publications discuss the rights of people when arrested. The Bureau decides to continue following any public information about the Mattachine and related publications. They keep in contact with informants visiting Mattachine meetings and wait for the right time to take action. 
But by now, the Mattachine Society knows they're being watched. That was the entire basis of eliminating the cultural minority people of the early Mattachine. The FBI watching from around the corner is business as usual. They've got the Bureau's full attention at all times. Now the Mattachine writers, like Carl B. Harding, encourage members to come out as a radical political strategy. Concrete social action can include informing carefully chosen individuals. It is far more practical for each homosexual to light a candle than talk about the darkness. This piece, titled Whom Should We Tell, addresses the same issues that Henry Gerber dealt with in the 1920s, homosexuals who enjoy the thrill of secrecy. The innumerable homosexuals who have been purged from their employment would hardly call their predicament fun. Nor would those who have been unjustly arrested, paid heavy fines, had embarrassing publicity, or gone to prison for harmless elements of their personal lives. Just so long as we homosexuals help maintain society's ignorance, we are guarding the very weapons we fear. The following August, 1956, Carl Harding, whose real name is Elver Barker, returns to his home in Denver, Colorado, where he's a fifth grade teacher. He decides to start his own Mattachine chapter there, in Denver, with six other people. His vision, to come out publicly and proudly, is one he believes would not just benefit members personally, but also the Mattachine Society as an organization. As Elver continues to write for Hal's Review, he imagines a Mattachine with newsletters, a library, guest lectures, group therapy, dinners, picnics, theater fundraisers, and publicly advocating for civil rights in the press. And Elver... We'll get it all. While Hal's articles push for evolution, not revolution, Elver demands change right now. Hal says, let's assimilate, but push against sexual puritanism. Let's get respect, but not repress our sex lives. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, but Hal's message is often an oxymoron. And in addition to that, his largely conservative paper leaves behind much of the queer community. At this point, transgender women are included in the gay male category. Sexuality and gender are still blurred together. Why would a trans woman living on the streets of San Francisco pick up Hal's paper when he's only writing about men? Like everyone else, Hal thinks trans women are just really swishy gay men. His paper has articles about police harassment, but it says gay men should fight those laws in the court while also saying those gay men shouldn't swish down the tenderloin sidewalks. So these gender nonconforming people who have to work these streets in order to survive have no interest in this paper that has no interest in them. The Mattachine and its paper aren't helping them. It'd be bad optics for the organization. The world still looks at gay men in general as sick, as sex perverts, especially the swishiest ones. The swishiest ones, for sure. And with their main gathering places, the bars, the resorts for sex perverts, still under crackdown by the government, there is only one way the movement can go forward. August 30th, 1956. (coughs) Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Evelyn Hooker. The American Psychological Association Convention in Chicago. It seemed highly probable that few clinicians have ever had the opportunity to examine homosexual subjects who neither came for psychological help nor were found in the mental hospitals, disciplinary barracks in the armed services, or in prison populations. This, I recognized, would be fraught with extreme difficulties, and so it was. 
next week on episode four, The Fairy Project. Dale Olson, the former Mattachine secretary, has a pretty interesting story after activism. He went on to write for The Hollywood Reporter and Variety, co-founded the Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle, and in 1985, he opened his own publicity company. Dale Olson became the spokesperson for Rock Hudson during his fight with AIDS, convincing the actor to talk about his diagnosis publicly. You can hear much more about Dale Olson, a.k.a. Curtis White, in the first season of the podcast. Hear bonus episodes with even more queer history on my other podcast, Forgotten Fairy Tales. Subscribe only at patreon.com slash queer serial. Hear the story of a 1930s Manhattan murder and a Daughters of Belitis writer who challenges the gender binary. Both of these episodes focus on bisexual characters, I'm realizing right now. Check those out and plenty more bonus episodes to come at patreon.com slash queer serial. Patrons also get other fun rewards like buttons, mugs, photos of the research process, and transcripts of the episodes. If you're a teacher looking for transcripts of episodes, contact me on QueerSerial.com. A huge thank you to some of my top donors who have waited patiently for season two. Adrian Cardwell, Richard Bell, and Samuel Tepperman Gelfont. Your support makes this show so much better. Thank you so much. This season is also brought to you in part by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence San Francisco. Resources for the podcast can be found at QueerSerial.com. For more visuals and stories that didn't make the cut, check out the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Serial. I've recently posted photos of The Ladder, One Magazine, and Mattachine Review issues that were published the year this episode takes place, along with some images of the Mattachine offices that are shared with the Daughters of Belitis. They're pretty cool. Check it out at Queer Serial on Instagram and Twitter. Also, go there for previews of next week's episode, too. And please, if you have a sec, rate and review the show on iTunes so new people can find the show. I really appreciate that. And share the show with your friends and family, whether they're gay, straight, asexual, anywhere on or off the Kinsey scale. Voice actors. The Audrey Lord quote was read by Demika Victoria. The man and trapped in the bar was played by Garrett Williams. Officer J by Mike Lysak. Mayor George Christopher and Deputy AG by John Roth. ABC agent by Adrian Barker. Hal Call by Dominic Caruso. Morris Lowenthal by Evan Camp. Mattachinos by Mike Kanish and Cockettes filmmaker David Weissman. Dr. Evelyn Hooker by my mom, Rennell Goff. Phyllis Line by Jane Serenska. Jim Kepner by Gage Kyle. Investor by Courtney Tesh. Dale Olson's final appearance by Paul DeCicio. Sam Morford by Jacob Wallace, Elver Barker by original radical fairy Joey Kane, and author James Barr was played by the fabulous Matt Baum. Check out his many queer projects, including The Sewers of Paris, in which he interviews gay men about the entertainment that changed their life. Check out my episode, we talk about Mary Poppins. And Matt Baum's Culture Cruise videos on YouTube are incredible. Many of them examine the queerness of Frasier, and you know I live for it. A massive thank you to all the actors, friends, and family who donated their time and talent to the show. Music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. See you next week. I can't see where it gives us any valuable standing to salute a drag queen. I hardly think that the professional people we have been trying to win will be pleased with it at all. That's fucking fantastic, Paul. Mm. That was so good. Can we do channeled Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>